because everybody's white people don't want to go to black people like <laughs> Asian don't want nobody wants to be in that space. Yeah. And I think the thing that, you know, as professionals, we miss out on in terms of trying to navigate this is giving people an opportunity to connect. We are in another episode of the Living Out Loud discussion series, and today we are talking about the oh-so-common avoidance of openly talking about power, privilege, and oppression in professional settings. I am your host, Charmaine Nutz, relational DEI expert. If you're new here, we are talking about unpacking real-life scenarios and issues that come up in our work together in professional settings or in settings where we feel like we need to be buttoned up goal of every single episode is to reveal the layers and the nuances in our interactions so that we can learn from them as a community that cares about diversity, equity, and inclusion. As always, the thoughts, views, and opinions shared in this discussion, they are my own and not as a representative of any of the agencies by which I'm employed or contracted by. Today, I am joined by my good friend and colleague, Kendrick Dial. Now, Kendrick is a creative coach and trainer who combines mental health, social justice, and the arts. Holding a BA in Africana Studies and Psychology, MSW from USC, and with a background in the U.S. Navy as a radar technician and a substance abuse counselor, Kendrick, his experience really lends itself well to the dynamics and the complex topics of power, privilege, and oppression in professional settings. Today, he contributes to Academy for Professional Excellence as a practice coach. He is also a strengths consultant and operates his own business called Creative Engagement. He helps organizations create inclusive, anti-racist, and engaging cultures. As an artist, he's a frontman songwriter and producer for the award-winning band The Lyrical Groove. And Kendrick is also a spoken word artist, a voiceover actor, and a film composer. I am telling you, his artistic perspective, it brings a fresh approach to these types of challenging conversations. I have known Kendrick. I've only known you so probably a couple years, but it's yeah, felt like still, longer. Yeah. yeah, it really does. So you <laughs> and I have worked in several different spaces. We've done trainings together. We've coached stuff together. We've built curriculum together. It's been really cool to do that with you. I have experienced you to be very gifted at being in the most uncomfortable spaces. You are just very natural and you have this ability to just call people into something and have them look at themselves very directly at the same time, which you do with kindness. And it's definitely an art in how you do that. <laughs> We, we can talk about that too. I think the process, how that's developed. Ooh, that would be good. That'd be yeah. good. But I learned from you a lot and I'm super happy to have you here today. Today's topic is openly talking about power, privilege, and oppression in these different types of professional settings. When do these conversations typically happen in the professional settings? That's... <laughs> So it's interesting that you see you frame it like that because the conversation versus for the situation that happens that is the precipice to make the need for the conversation are two different things because often there's a presence and a need for the conversation before there becomes a space available to have the conversation, mm. which makes it another, which is another reason why it becomes challenging to have the conversation because oftentimes they're not even 
organizations are not even making the space to have the conversation. Now, when we dig into that, I think it's a lot of different reasons that go into it from a personal and an organizational standpoint. I think when we're looking at how organizations have historically moved, you know, we talk about the dynamic of institutions. And if we recognize that institutions have been built off white supremacy characteristics and dynamics overall, which is infused with racism and all the isms in terms of how they govern and how we make policies and all these different things, that doesn't give space or opportunity to break up through because it's, it's basically like telling the people in charge, you're wrong. And if you're making the system, it's rare that you want people come back telling you wrong. So why would you give space to have somebody say that? And so within this space, I think the dynamic is shifting because the social consciousness of society is shifting to a degree. So where now you can look at things and everybody doesn't automatically feed into that basket, if you will. So I think it's a lot of things that are impacting how we're showing up nowadays and the capacity to do that. And I think the work that I've appreciated doing with you is helping individuals, organizations develop the capacity to have the conversation. What does it mean to set the stage to have the conversation? What does it mean to identify the needs and why we need to have the conversation? We'll start right there. So that's just off the top. We'll start we'll right there. Good. I was like, David Kedrick, you just came in hot. Let's just come and hold all the things you just said. There were, to me, there were two parts. One was much more complex. The first part was having the need first. There's a need. There are, there's the part where there's a need to have these conversations. And then there's the capacity preparedness to even have them. And right. so I wasn't stuck there, but I was holding on to that first part around the need is likely always there. Right. Right. Because there are so many different people working in organizations with different experiences, but without the space and safety and normalization of the conversations, right. I, there is that disconnect. Before a second, if we could go back to that first part around the need, right. the, I don't remember how you phrased it, but that is how I was receiving what you were saying the need versus the capacity. And I don't know if everyone understands why there's a need to even be talking about this stuff because right. I feel like, I was thinking about this the other day, I feel like there's a desire to not talk about the things because people want to be on the same playing field. We want to share power. We want to say, yes, we have privilege, but we're working all together without really sitting in the, the parts of us, the identities that we hold that do have and hold power and privilege over others or even our own experiences of oppression to really sit into that is right. not like as common. I was having a you moment right now because I'm listening. Did I say I'm listening to what you said. I'm like, ah, I don't want to. I should get a pen and write this down. That's something I'm like, I'm having fun right here. I'm be taking notes because that's a whole I really lot. need to do that. So what comes up for me as you're saying that, I know one thought that I had was like, the fact that we are all starting from very different places and we call this out, I think in the trainings that we do, that one of the things that makes it so difficult is that everybody is starting out from a different place in terms of either education or education and personal and social awareness. It's amazing in terms of that we talk about these dynamics and I think people miss out on recognizing how much of an emotional thing this is because 
there's tons of information out there, right? There's tons of books we could be reading, there's tons, but people's feelings about it prevent them from even doing the exploration. Like I, I talk and I'll be very candid. And like, I, I know when I'm talking to a white person who's done the work, because I can tell how they're internalizing the conversation. White people who haven't necessarily done too much research and done the personal work to navigate these conversations tend to take things very personal. And so when you're bringing up these things, that's how they receive them instead of a conversation they talk about and recognizing where they do or don't play into those dynamics or having that recognition. So I think that's one of the things because I think when we also talk about capacity, we also talk about skill set. You can't develop the skill set if you never are in the moments to develop the skill set. So that makes it another challenging yeah, space yeah. to navigate, <laughs> which makes it even the, the more important because if you do study, if you do, you see the impact of these power and privilege and oppression in terms of how it impacts decisions that are made, policies, how people are getting promoted, how organizational culture is developed. We see how that is impacting and it's detrimental to people's livelihood. Mm-hmm. I'm going to start right there because it's... This needs to be a several part series. Oh, right. I'm already, we should just stop here and just... <laughs> Because there's so many different directions that we can go with right. what's being said. Maybe it's our responsibility to make sure that it's clear, close yeah. loops on things that might need right. to be closed, but that's fine. We can just go with where we're going. Yeah. But I really do appreciate, and I feel like you do this a lot. You bring up the people's capacity and skill set, the work that they've done. And I appreciate your candor. I don't mind saying specifically who we're talking about. If it's white people, it's white people. If it's a different group, it's a different group. I think that's part of normalizing just saying it. It's to me, people also avoid saying white people in addition to other terms, which is really interesting because there are organizations, there are people that are committed to making change. It could be many types of change overall so that we are more socially conscious and people want to do that. But Like you said, when it comes to really entering into the space and feeling what it feels like to even say words and name stuff and sit in it with other people, it's it's hard to even do that. So if people are struggling with even saying and acknowledging the terms, it's hard to do anything with it. And I have found it fascinating that a lot of the work that I do to even help people get to the point where they can really work on their relationships is not necessarily having traditional trainings, but but having experiential experiences where it's, we're saying it, I'm saying it, you can say it, let's say it out loud. That's really the practice. And it's just, can you say it? What does it mean? Can you say this in your own words? Talk with your partner about it. Let's come back. Can you explain it to And it makes people so uncomfortable. And I'm fine if this is where you're at in the work, but this is a piece of it. And then you're going to have to take this and use it in real life scenarios with people that you are connected to or collaborating with and problem solving with and and whatever the case may be. There's just something about saying the words in general that really jars people. And go ahead. To that point, because... when we talk about how folks don't know how it's going to be received, like even being in different spaces and it's like, do I say black? Do I say African-American? Like which one (laughs) is the appropriate? And I always tell folks, just ask. Because you got some people that'll be very staunch, some black 
other, on the other side, hey, I'm African-American. Or you got some people just, okay, either one, that's y'all, that's for yeah. the other people title anyway. We didn't name ourselves that. So it, it really depends on the, the person and awareness. And the only way to truly navigate these conversations at times is to really just lean in. And at the same time, I can recognize those moments when, for lack of a better term, folks come with a seemingly dumb question, right? Yeah. But it's, it's, it's the true essence of ignorance because you're not knowing, not done any research to find out or anything like that. And so it's, it's truly just ignorant, but it's almost like, think about where it comes from in terms of the lack of humanity that is gone from a general space in terms of how somebody else might be receiving it. Like all of that becomes a part of this, which makes it such a convoluted experience where folks are trying to navigate it and makes it more challenging. But my phrase as of late is sometimes you got to go through it to get to it. And that's just the reality of it. Like we, you can't be stuck on trying to get the right results as opposed to going through the experience of feeling your way through to see what it is. Like yes. sometimes that's going to be the only way that you really understand how to sit in this space. And even in that sitting in space, it might mean if you come from white culture, dominant culture, putting yourself in places where you're not the dominant person. That's a part of understanding how, you know, how other people are experiencing things. You might not need to walk in those exact shoes, mm -hmm. but what is, what is walking into the feeling of those shoes look like? What is that space? Yeah. Yeah. You, this is going to be hard because you keep know, saying right? a bunch of things. I don't have anything to write with. Look, I got my Apple Pencil, but I'm also using my iPad to do something else. So I have nothing to write on. But the last thing you said did make me think about when we're talking about who's uncomfortable talking about these words. And it's not necessarily just white people. Right, right. It's really not. And I think that. I think we over-associate. It's just like white people who have a problem talking about this stuff. They 100% do. And I have seen that other people do as well. I don't think it is specific to any particular race ethnicity, although the level of the feelings can be stronger in white people. I've seen that too. But I don't, there's no blanket statement over who says it, who's uncomfortable. Why is this look on your face? Tell me what you're thinking. Because my question to you, can we yes. talk about the why? Yes, let's talk the, about the Like why. the white people, a white person is going to why a black person or a Latino might be uncomfortable. Because I think mm -hmm. that part of it is a very different dynamic yeah. in terms of the discomfort, right? I want to hear what you have to say about that, considering I feel like. Yeah, so to me, what I have experienced is white people really struggle with these conversations because... They have a lot of shame about history and what it means about them as individuals or them as like white people and just gets very personalized. So there's definitely a lot of shame there. There's lots of fear around how they will be viewed, how relationships will change. Is something going to happen if it's a job? I think it's heightened a little bit more with cancel culture. So people are just really afraid to say anything and... Yeah ruffle feathers. I have seen people of color, non-white people not say something because it's not safe to say it. These are not conversations that happen at work at all. Those who do say have historically been 
discriminated against, retaliated against, different forms of abuse have happened to them. I am one of those people, unfortunately. And then the part that's like a little bit surprising is that there's similar reasons that I just explained that white people experience that also people of color experience too around the shame and fear of what will happen to relationships and what will happen to their jobs or how they'll be labeled. But there, there is a difference, but there's some similarity in like the emotion, but there's definitely a difference. So to me, that's how I would describe it. Yeah. Tell me what you got. That was exactly it. Oh. I knew you had it. That's why I, I just want to throw it alive. <laughs> what? Yo, you tell me what the answer is. Okay. <laughs> and it could be, this is literally just right. my experience. So I have also yeah. learned that there is truly right. not right. one type of experience. I think about my own journey a lot too. As a, per, as a white and a black person, it's been really interesting being in this space right. because I had to really look at myself. There was so much white in me that was problematic because it was dismissive and harmful to other people, including myself. And so I had to get really used to saying words that I just never, that was just not a thing. Like I was, Fair. we did not talk about that stuff. We were supposed to talk about that stuff. So I, in this really interesting way, like understand the experience and know it in my brain. And unfortunately I have to pay a lot of attention because I still operate with that fear in me sometimes. I really do. And I have Fair. to ask myself, is this from a place of like privilege or a place of like oppression? I have to ask myself that all the time. Fair. And I have an awesome coach who does that with me. And sometimes it's both. Sometimes it really is from this, from my white identity that I Fair. do or do not do things. So it's Fair. like super real. My point it's is it's all nuanced and it's not people yeah. fitting in the buckets. I'd say even in this, I'll just add a different, slightly different perspective of kind of that journey that you're talking about, the self-reflection, because I think everybody has to continue to self-reflecting and you can't be on one side or the other necessarily and just feel like you got it all figured out. And I say that because the supremacy, white supremacy is such ingrained and in racism is so ingrained into, I'll just say, American culture. Eve, there are times when, you know, even within, we talk about colorism, like there's dynamics within a specific ethnic group and ethnic culture that you see these dynamics play out, which is another thing that even happens because once you get to more of a homogeneous group, then the power and the privilege really come out, right? Because you, it's the classism, the education, and how all those, those dynamics take on. I, I would say part of my personal journey and reflection, something that I had to go through, get through, is coming from an African studies background, right? Black studies and with the appreciation of a black nationalist perspective. Some folks that do this work, they go and swing it. Hey, white man, you're the devil. Like you might, they don't necessarily say, but they might as well be saying that. And to that degree, on, on some levels, maybe it has a place in some places. But I think in terms of for me, doing this work is really about educating people, getting people to be able to self-reflect and see those moments to, to be able to call them out. And like, how do you create the environment to do that? I know in our, my experience with you, I think the benefit or the thing that I've noticed that makes the work that we do very in, in impactful and engaging is really setting the stage and 
for us to be able to have an environment where we know people are going to mess up. Somebody's going to say something to make somebody feel some type of way. We know somebody is going to have a reaction to what somebody says. But to be able to look at that and number one, think about the intent and number two, set the space to be like, okay, we have to practice being able to navigate these conversations. So on one hand, I did this in the training recently where this white girl, she shared, this white woman, she shared a perspective and a black woman in her group, she had a reaction to it. And the beautiful thing that was happening is that they were actually talking about it and black woman's like, if you would have said something like that, I took it, she would have took it a certain way, yada, yada. And so we just, we opened up the conversation and I had the, the white woman say what she said. And I asked the black woman to give me her understanding of what she said. And the importance of that was making sure that they were actually hearing each other because we hear each other with lenses and we see each other with lenses of the experience that we think the other person has, as opposed to the experience that they have had or the intention that they really mean. So making the space so folks can actually converse and make sure that they're actually hearing what they said is such a needed piece of being able to navigate this space because we have such very different experiences. And even with language, we may say the same word, but we mean totally different things. Yeah. Like I'm hungry, man, I'm hungry, but I'm cool for another two to three hours. Yeah. Somebody else is hungry. Yo, <laughs> if I don't get a snicker in here, somebody, I'm going up somebody's head. So it's really, I always tell people, even within the conflict, if you see yourself, you're talking, y'all seem to be saying the same word. I would say, what do you mean when you say this? Yeah. Like to really get a, a deeper understanding of where they're coming from, because oftentimes we're not saying the same. Yeah. One of the things that you're talking about that I, I don't, could be super tangible for people is the practicing to get it well and to also be able to navigate getting it wrong. I think that people mm -hmm. really want to do it right and say the right words. But the goal of practicing isn't to learn all the things and do it like right every time. The right. goal is to build the capacity right. to, to get it wrong and right. maintain the connection with the person, maintain a level of curiosity to learn and change behavior as it makes sense to. That's the goal. And I think that people spend a lot of time trying to intake as much as possible. So the day that they do put into practice, it's right. right. And in some ways that is a disservice that is avoidance. You have to go into it, like you're saying, and build capacity to do it well and wrong like that. Right. You've got to learn how to do it well and wrong. And I'm thinking right. about, I had someone come up to me and I was teaching something. They come up after they're basically, like, Hey, I have a situation over here with a client. I'm a white person and I work with clients that I have one and I don't want to acknowledge if I say, Hey, we have these differences. Am I creating a problem? And I'm like, why are you even bringing this to me? Let me hear some more about this. And it's basically a white person in a space. I serve people of color and I want to know if this is going to be impacting them. And I want them to know that it's a place where I might not know everything. And because I'm a white person, and so we can talk about that if it's helpful. And have you said any of this to this person? Just no, no. And what is the reason why? So I'm like really asking like, what's the reason right. why? Right. And it's, I don't want to create a problem. What are the other reasons why? And the person's like, well, I'm uncomfortable. I said, okay, 
Do you want to continue to choose your comfort over Mm -hmm. seeing if your client's needs can be met? No. Like, so what, what would you like to do in this situation? Because it really boils down to, do you want to choose to keep not doing or choose to sit in your own comfort or ignore and avoid whatever it is? You want to keep doing that from your place of privilege or power, depending on the person. Or do you want to try and see what happens? Because I guarantee you, you saying or not saying something doesn't change the presence of it. And you not saying something tells your clients something. It tells them it's not okay to talk about it. It might not be safe to talk about it. And that there's lots of things that they might not be able to get any support with because you won't even acknowledge it. And then there's the added layer of putting the responsibility on someone that you're working with to have to tell what's important instead of. So anyways, it was fascinating. My point of all of that was, I like to ask people those questions around, here's a situation. Do you want to keep doing that or not? And so like you Mm -hmm. have to, to me, I have to ask that question because you keep not. So do you want to keep doing this or not? And what will you do if the answer is no? And ultimately that person came back around and was like, I tried it and it went well. And I'm like, damn, it's a great job. Like you said, let's try it out. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's amazing. So my route into this work, which hearing you say that really brought it out for me, was through comfort resolution. And it's, it's, and even doing like restorative justice circles and things of that nature, because actually some of that work is based in the apartheid dynamics and healing through that and healing circle. But the fact that that's the essence of what we're talking about when we talk about navigating the space is really we talking about culture and identity and what that, but it's really being able to handle conflict. And I don't think we make that connection enough because when you think about conflict, a lot of folks are conflict avoided. And so they will run away from the slightest sign of conflict, which is what makes this such a challenging space for folks to be in. Because it also, as you pointed out, there's the conflict within self that there are. So you're managing that conflict and then you're managing the conflict outside of yourself. And so, and if you don't have that capacity or the skill set to navigate that, then it's just, it only amplifies the space in terms of what makes it such a challenge that never to address. Yeah. The self part is to, to me, and just from my own personal experience as a person having to do it and then working with other people, the understanding of what is happening in you is more important than right the other person or group of people, there is so much that we are doing in ourselves that drives what happens and doesn't happen. And for me, a lot of my learning was having to really figure out why I was doing what I was doing or not and where it came from. I had to like really learn and I still have to figure out at times, what is that behavior about and where did it even come from? Because it helps me do different situations. When I had no idea about anything, I was just doing all kinds of stuff. I couldn't tell you why. I could not tell you why. But now I get to do different. Like in a moment, I get to say, all right, this part of me is activated. 
well, that's okay. It's got nothing to do with those persons. Well, I really need to stay in this moment and figure out how to self-regulate because they're trying to say something here. But the internal piece to me is the most significant. And I don't mean the internal in terms of learning more knowledge. The knowledge is important, but the deeper layer of how we experience what we're learning and how we experience trying to use it, how we experience avoiding it, is powerful and the greatest gift you're going to be able to give yourself if you're trying to make these types of changes. So I had a question. So what I'm, but what I'm, I want to get at what you're talking about is basically having the capacity to really develop your own awareness around how and why you do or don't respond to certain situations as it relates to these dynamics of culture and identity, et cetera. Because I was, and you answered because I was, one of the greatest things I, as a trainer, I appreciate is folks having those aha moments, right? And what I heard you say is that's such a big piece of this, but not necessarily because somebody else was giving it to you. It's like, you have to sit in this space and explore you so you can get to those aha moments yourself. Because that's always a question too. So how do you get to this awareness and how do you get there? How do you see it? And it's just like, it, part of it is that the, I think the knowledge allows for the outward awareness to a great degree in terms of understanding these are some of the things that you're continuing with and dealing with. These are the end-isms. These are how they look. This is how we define them. Mm-hmm. And, and so once you have that knowledge, then you can begin to maybe have the framework or the literature, the words, right? You can have the language to apply to yourself. And maybe a lens, because it's often easier to look at the lens outside of yourself first. You have the lens to be able to look at yourself and to question your actions because you also recognize there's a feeling that's connected to those actions. And you have to challenge yourself and ask yourself, why do I feel like this? And why did I decide to take this route? And those are personal conversations that we have to be willing to have with ourselves that will help us navigate this in the context of working with other people. Yes. You are actually, this whole thing that you're describing is literally like the types of experiences that living unapologetically creates because like we just had, yeah, I can say that. We just had this training and it was truly only practice-based. Like at the top, it was like, this is practice only. We're barely talking. If you don't want to practice it, this ain't the fix for you. Right. And it was like, here are the prompts, like s- practice saying the words. And when you go into the groups, don't talk about what you would say if you were in the situation. It is the people in front of you. It is the scenario and practice it. And the follow-up prompts were like, what did you feel before you said it? What, what did you feel like during mm-hmm. it? What happened after? Like just literally unpacking it. And then there was also prior to doing that, put people in the groups and be like, look, how do you feel about role playing? And what do you need to be able to feel safe here? And then put them in there to do that. Because I right. do acknowledge like it's practice and people haven't done it before. So right. we do what we can to create some level of safety, but not all situations and workplaces right. or other professional settings will be that way. But at least in these more, I don't like the word control, guided experiences right. that we right. provide. There are ways where you can try it on and find your own like voice or what I call like personal protocol. The things that you are comfortable saying so that you can 
try out these different types of conversations, but that's so important. It's so important to do that. Right. Yes. And so that's what I, that's what I'm there for. <laughs> I live for this. That creating those moments for folks to experience it. I did a training not too long ago and folks were like, yeah, I've, of course, you never hear anything related to DEI and training in professional spaces. Here we go again. A lot of that the expectations that folks is going to get up there, they're going to they're gonna berate the white people. And then they're just going to be telling the folks stuff all day because everybody's white people don't want to go. The black people don't wanna like <laughs> the Asian don't want nobody wants to be in that space. Yeah. And I think the thing that, you know, as professionals, we miss out on in terms of trying to navigate this is giving people an opportunity to connect. And kind of like you, in this training, the main thing that I did was create an opportunity for folks to really connect to where that view of who they saw somebody as got challenged because they actually got a chance to hear their story. They got a chance to actually ask questions and reflect and see the similarities and see the nuances of the differences. And I think it's the difference piece where some people are like, you don't want to focus on the difference. The difference is there. Like you, you can't act like the differences are there and differences intrinsically do not bring up the conflict. Yeah. How you respond to it and now somebody to all that difference is what brings up the conflict, right? Mm-hmm. So having that space to navigate is really, I think, an important dynamic of kind of creating experiential experience that folks need to do this because you have to be able to feel the emotions, understand the emotions, but also connect with the new information that you're getting and see how that rebalances you. Yeah. Yes. There is like a piece of this that I want to just like bookmark for us and come back to because I think it could be like its own conversation and it's around the skill set needed to facilitate those types of experiences Mm, because... DEI land is so uh, more about knowledge than anything else. And it takes a special skill set to be able to do what you're describing. And I know we can't do it right now, but like, I just want to bookmark that. Can we please unpack that part? Because I think there's some really cool things to say about that. The one of the last things I, or the last thing I wanted to bring up though in this conversation was, and maybe it's my own struggle. I don't know. But like I, in this conversation, I do actually personally struggle at times where like people of color view talking about power, privilege, and oppression as looking at people of color as victims. Mm-hmm. Like I try to, yeah. I really do try. Like everyone's perspective is their own. Their lived experiences are valid. I really be trying to hold on to that but this is one that like touches on me internally because i'm like it's not that but it, i can't tell other people <laughs> how it is but yeah, yeah, yeah. So i just wanted to talk to you about that i just yeah wherever this can go i'm like this is just a thing for me and i really struggle with it so it's, it's interesting that you say that i was on the podcast the other day and it was about men and women relationships and i guess the concept of the soft life right and Wait, the dynamic soft life yeah, soft life, which is basically, I gotta bring up the definition, but it's basically oh. being able to live a, not necessarily a struggle-free life, but to not feel like you, you have to hustle as much as you have to hustle 
just to live baseline. And, and the conversation ended up getting into this black man versus or, or a black woman's experience because of the hardships that different folks experience. And to that point, I think it's, and, and this is coming from a, a black man who's maneuvered the world in, I say, a different way because of the way that I look at things, right? To that point, I'm not going to give somebody, yes, the system is there, like hands down, I get it. And it continues to be there. I get to choose how I show up into it and how I respond to it and the systems that I build in my life to help me respond to it. And there's also this space where if everything, it, it, what I hear you say is there's no agency, right? There's no personal agency in terms of how we choose to navigate this space. And I think the other piece is, I'm, I think of the people who I, I look after in terms of I look up to. So be it like a Paul Robeson, be it like a Quincy Jones and whatnot. And these men who've navigated these racial terrains and have still been able to succeed and how they've been able to maneuver. And it's, don't get me wrong, it's a lot of even other stuff that goes along with that. But then there's also this piece where this, I think I shared the framework with you whilst looking at identity, lived experience, critical consciousness, and skill set. There, it, it, the challenge with that, the victimization piece, is also not taking ownership that even as marginalized communities, we still have race, we still have sexism, right? We still have ableism. We still have these other dynamics that we even do to ourselves. So at some point is to navigate the space, like even, like you said earlier, like no matter your identity, there are moments where you have power and privilege. Now the spectrum of their power and privilege may look a little bit different, yeah. but you still have it. And so in that space, and then how are you also willing that power and privilege? Because if that's the case, we become that in which we feel is victimizing us. And so I think it's a space where, yes, it's real, it's true. And I think the other piece of it is also recognizing what is your power and how do you play into it? It's one thing if you're being impacted by a system and you don't know what's going on, going back to we're talking about overt, overt racism versus covert racism. It's another thing, if I know what the system is, then in how it shows up, then my duty, if nothing for nobody else but me and my family and those that I love and support, I'm going to figure out a way to maneuver around outside of that system so that I can get my just still. Now, that's just me and my awareness and where I'm at right now. If somebody else got some other stuff, please tell me and open that up for me. But that's where I'm at. Therefore, I don't feel the capacity. I think this is this piece about me choosing to do Africana studies as a major. Because I knew the most important thing that I would have to experience in my life, whatever, I was still going to be a black man. So I needed to be as educated, as soundly assured of my blackness and my African, African heritage and how that showed up for me. Because I knew it was going to be a part of whatever situation that I was in. And because I have that, I know where I come from. I know from my roots is. And so I know the vast, the expansion of how I get to show up. So even in the same space where, because we do it to ourselves, right? Where I might look like, I might not show up like even some black folks 
might typically expect a black man to show up, right? Yeah. Therefore, I might not show up white folks expect a black. I get to define how I show up yeah. for me. And I get to navigate yeah. that water. And I empower myself to do that. And therefore, there's no one, no man, no black, no white, no other that gets to infringe upon I how I choose to show up. And yeah. so, therefore, I don't get to be, I don't allow myself to simply just be a victim of circumstance. Because yeah. if that's the case, I would have given up life a long time ago. Yeah. You just made me have this really interesting aha moment. And so it doesn't matter how long I do this. I'm going to always be like yeah. connecting dots. And I hope I make sense because I feel like if I can say this, it's important. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready in here. Like, like. Oh, I'm going to have to watch this back because I really need to get this. But it, So when you were talking, I was thinking about the situations that I hear this and what those people have in common. So the first, the second thing I was thinking was how these topics are taught, mm. how they are taught to talk about. And I started thinking about like working with younger people in the field, students or people who are like just fresher in their careers especially in the field of social work. And it's taught oppression and what happens to people is taught from help those people. They need help. Yeah. So much stuff happens to those people over. The, it's definitely, it's taught from this. Cause you think about like education, right, how that's right. set up, the narratives, who teaches. So the conversations are taught and spoken about from this place of all poor, whatever groups of people like, right. As I was thinking, I'm like, I had that too. I had that too. Now, it helped me because I just needed to acknowledge whatever was going on with me and undo stuff. But I imagine people either going to school or being in workplaces with people who facilitate conversations from that place of, oh, poor people. And I hope that makes sense because it could be anybody mm -hmm. looking at whoever experiences right. oppression is that's really sad for you. Let's talk about how sad that is. And let's right. do something for you. It doesn't come from a place of like liberation. To me, I always get activated when I hear, I don't want to be a victim. Like it's not about talking about this stuff is not about sitting in victimhood at all. Right. Talking about it is to name and to liberate from that place to be able to make decisions for ourselves about what's right. happening, what doesn't happen, what it means. Like all the stuff that you were saying was from a place of liberation. But my aha moment is how the conversations are taught and mm -hmm. how they are facilitated current day are right. not from a place of we are doing this in order to achieve liberation and to achieve healthy relationships. It's not framed mm -hmm. in that way. Right, right. And this helps me because I feel very aligned with that. And I think I, I believe I teach this way, but not explicitly. Right. And I want to be more explicit in the teaching. Because it's not about speaking this way so that we see people as victims at all. Right. But anywho, let me just stop there. That was just my aha moment. I just appreciate you for speaking what you said out loud because it just, it made me learn something. So the piece that I, that you activated for me was like the importance and the need of the framework that I come from is about building relationships. And how do you go about doing that? 
And I think that's even somewhat of a nuance too, right? Because it's, I need you to get the truth and how do we hold capacity to build a relationship even with that truth? Because it's not, a, it's a very ugly truth, right? And I feel like I'm gonna stop right there. But that was the piece that came up was like, <laughs> oh, ultimately it's a, for me, I lean into the building relationships because mm-hmm. that's such a needed piece of how we navigate this. But question then being like, how do you navigate these tumultuous terrain? to build relationships when there's so much of a long-standing history and negative mm-hmm. and even societal dynamics that are very present, so. Yes, I like the part of holding the space for all of it. There's space for all of the things. And right. I also want to be clear too, like I'm not even saying the not having to be from a place of victimhood does not mean we don't acknowledge the effed up stuff that we're actually right. talking that is acknowledged, but right. we're not acknowledging it so that we can just look at people like they are less than or need some sort of like help and they're not part of a process. And I love the relational piece. Like I really love that. I feel like we wove that in all throughout this conversation. And I also feel like this is why it's important for us to come back to that convo about how to help people do that. because. Right. I, I don't think that's terribly common. I don't. Yeah. So um, this may be a slight aside from that. I was okay. on a panel and black educators. And so I think that they were asking about how do we make space for healthy professionals, black professionals in education? Because one of my struggles as an educator teaching at a predominantly white institution was recognizing like. And even was recognizing that educators can be bitter. Ed- educators of color can be hella bitter. Okay. And righteously so, because they're entrenched within a system that I would have thought is a place where we're forward thinking, we're teaching the new concepts and whatnot. And that is not the case in terms of how they get to navigate. And this is speaking from teaching in a predominantly in a black program. And, or even looking at Chicano programs. And it's just whack. The struggle is real. And it, it really is a, a microcosm of the bigger picture in terms of how marginalized communities, even in these particular spaces, have so much to have to fight for. And it's like mm-hmm. you're dealing with so much day in, day out. And it can be very, a very negative space. So then, how do you navigate that? How do you stand up for your students and try to stand up for your department? Send it for yourself. And it's such a challenging space to have to sit in. The, the pieces in the context of what you thought just came up for me just because I recognize so many professionals in education that act like teen or otherwise. There's a real, at times, there's a real like raw energy because it's a constant fight to have to show up in a particular way to deal with all the things you have to deal with. And I know everybody isn't as fortunate as I to be able to just ain't dealing with y'all and <laughs> jump to something else or whatnot. <laughs> and so, yeah. Yes. I actually would like to weave that into the thing that we bookmarked because that, that definitely is connected. And I resonated with a lot of that too, just in the experience of holding that space, moving things forward, all the other stuff going on your own experiences, like how much can you really, how much can you really hold? Like what's realistic? 
because there's the skill part and then there's all of life in what that right. means in your capacity to use it at any given time. It's a lot. It's a lot. Look, let's put the pin in that and then just wrap up with, is there anything that we want to say on this topic before we wrap up? We feel like we got all the things. No, yeah. no I think for me, I, I appreciate the conversation and particularly, and I actually do look forward to going back to that, the bookmark piece around facilitating and navigating those waters. But I think it's a space where as we are developing the skill set and the capacity to have these conversations, I think there's such a gift in front loading and experience a conversation that can help somebody lean in and engage in a different way, as opposed to when we just spring stuff on it. And so I think leaning into that is another great way that we can help set the stage to have these conversations and dialogues in professional spaces, even if it's like, Hey, let's set up a meeting to specifically talk about A, B, and C, and let's not run from it. Let's not, even if it's, we're just taking in information for some, it might be hard to hear. So maybe the first step is just, yo, let's just call out the elephants in the room and organizations. That's a challenging space to do because, but this is where I think organizational leadership has to take place because they have to be willing to front load and to lead by example and do the work themselves to mm -hmm. develop that awareness. Because that's the other piece that I've had in these trainings. They'll be like, yo, this is a great training, but our leadership needs to be here. Yeah. Yep. That happens all the time. Right. And even in spaces with leaders, I feel like I still hear that too. Right. It's not yeah, all the yeah. leaders. Are, yeah. It's uh, yeah. really interesting. Or the other leaders that are not here need to really yeah, be Thank you so much, Kendrick. I also enjoyed this. I feel like there were so many things we did not get to. Right, the right. things that we did get to, I personally found very helpful. And even like the aha moment, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm having a whole no, situation going on. Right. Thanks. I just thank you. And I look forward to being able to do this on future topics. Yes, and hopefully yes, yes. people found this super helpful. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they, I'll leave your info in the description, but what's the best way to contact you? So actually I'm developing it. My website is getting worked on right now and it is simply just nice. going to be kendrickdial.com. So I give it a little time. Otherwise you can Google me, but <laughs> if you want to email me, kdialmsw at gmail, that's another way, but kendrickdial.com, that'll be coming up and, and yeah, we'll be able to engage. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so if you found this useful, I suggest you share it with people close to you, coworkers, leaders, people in your network. Use it as a discussion tool and maybe you can use it with teams, people, anybody who can find it helpful. Use it and talk about it and share. If you want to connect with me, you can visit my website, livingunapologetically.com. There you can access my social media and email. There are free tools for you to deepen your practice, including more episodes in the series. We also have access to buy my book, Why is Conscious Leadership? A framework for leading with action and accountability. Other than that, thank you so much for listening and I hope to connect soon. And until then, bye.